Malachi chapter 2. Our text today will be verses 13 through 16. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would help your servant today deliver your word, and that you would, in your grace, help all of those who hear your word, have ears to truly hear it, and hearts to receive it. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit dwelling in your people, take your word and illuminate it that it would transform your children, that it would, Father, indeed renew our minds, that we would be a people conformed more closely to Christ, that we would be a people in this earth to give glorious witness to the message of the gospel and to the Savior himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would do this For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13 begins with these words, and this is the second thing you do. This reference to a second thing implies, obviously, that there's a first thing, right? A previous thing. And if we review the three previous verses in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12, we will see that the first thing was, what the first thing was, and we'll have a better understanding of the context of our our verses today. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, the prophet asked three questions. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Don't we all have one father? Don't we all have one creator? Why do we deal treacherously with one another profaning the covenant of the fathers? And the answer to these questions are that all God's children do have one father. Yes, we do have one father. And yes, we do have one creator. There is one God who has indeed created us. 
And we deal treacherously with one another and we profane the covenant because we are sinful children rebelling against our God and our Father. You might say, well, that doesn't describe me. Well, in reality, it describes all of us in various ways. We, not, we may not be exactly guilty of the sin that Malachi is pointing out here that the men of Judah were guilty of. But in a sense, we all are guilty. We are. The prophet continues in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11, by describing that an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy sanctuary. He has profaned the holy that the Lord loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Judah has committed marital and spiritual adultery against the Lord and against one another. Verse 13 then gives the consequence of this sin if not dealt with. And it was that those men who continue in it being awake and aware will be cut off from the Lord's people. From this context, the prophet leads into Malachi chapter 2 verse 13 with these words. And this is the second thing that you do. This second thing is understood by what is contained in verse 13 and verse 14. So let's look at this. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. The prophet writes. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 8, God tells the priests, you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble, and you have corrupted the covenant. Then comes the accusation in verse 11 of committing an abomination by marrying the daughter of a foreign god and thus profaning the Lord's holy institution. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, those words are describing the priest who are in unrepentant sin against God, but are weeping on the altar because God will no longer regard their offerings and their sacrifices. He will not receive it with goodwill from their hands. In the midst of their sin, the priest asked the Lord this question, for what reason? Why will you not regard our offering? Why will you not receive with goodwill from our hands the sacrifices we bring to you? For what reason? Verse 14 gives the answer. You have deserted the wife of the covenant. You have deserted the wife of your covenant. Listen to verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So God has now more than once accused Judah of dealing treacherously with one another. Why will God not regard their offerings any longer? 
Why will he no longer receive with goodwill from their hands? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, the wife with whom you have dealt treacherously, who is your companion and your wife by covenant, God says. They're pagan wives. Remember, they ran after pagan wives. And their pagan wives were not wives of the covenant. We might consider how they specifically dealt treacherously. That's kind of an ambiguous term. What exactly did they do with the wife of their youth? It's described for us in the Septuagint. The Septuagint gives a very specific thing that these men did. In verse 14, it describes the husbands as having deserted or abandoned their wives. They weren't just ill-treating them. They weren't just being mean to them. They weren't just dwelling with them and being contrary to them and making their lives miserable. They actually had deserted, abandoned their wives. The men of Judah were breaking faith with their wives and with the Holy and with the Lord by deserting their legal marriages in the Lord and joining themselves to pagan women in illegal marriages that God did not recognize. Because of that grievous sin, God would no longer regard their offerings. He did not receive their sacrifices and offerings with goodwill. And as a result, they covered the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, but they did not cover it with their repentance. So they were sad because of the consequence of their sin, but they were not sad about their sin. There is a difference. It's what the Bible calls godly sorrow. You know, when your kids get caught red-handed doing what you told them not to do, they're immediately sorry, but mostly they're sorry because they got caught, and they know they're going to suffer the consequences of disobeying. That's not the kind of repentance that God wants from his people. God wants godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is a sorrow that we have whether anybody else catches us or not because we know that God knows. And what God wanted was not just weeping and crying from these priests, from his people. He wanted true repentance. They wept, but they did not repent of their sin. God does not want weeping and crying. God demands true repentance, which would be to stop their sin and rebellion and be faithful to their wives and their children of the covenant. God wants obedience, not sacrifice. This is what Samuel told Saul when Saul sacrificed in disobedience. He sacrificed to the Lord thinking he was doing an okay thing because Samuel was late and Saul was tired of waiting. He grew impatient. And when he sacrificed to the Lord in disobedience, when Samuel comes, he says, what have you done? And Samuel tells him, to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, this is exactly what's happening here. They're bringing their sacrifices, trying to appease God, but God's not being appeased because God doesn't want their sacrifices. God wants their obedience. And what would obedience look like? Well, obedience would mean that these husbands would stop treating their wives with treachery, 
the husband would return and be restored to their wives and to the Lord in obedience to his word and in obedience to God's covenant. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman and and the God of creation who ordained the institution that is called marriage. God made them one. Verse 15. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? God made them one. Verse 15 is difficult in the Hebrew. There are various interpretations in the context, but in the context of what Malachi has laid out in the previous verses and what we will see in the following verses, it seems that the best way to understand verse 15 is in the context of the sanctity and the purpose of God making them one in marriage. So let's go back to the beginning to gain some greater insight. And I mean the beginning of Scripture to the very book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Scripture is clear, and we should never apologize, and we should never compromise this truth. In the beginning, God created them male and female. There are only two genders, and the Bible affirms this truth that no one can deny unless, of course, they are seeking confusion. And many today are seeking confusion for the purpose of destroying the family. Jesus quoted scripture from Genesis when speaking concerning marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus said... It says of Jesus, and he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. These husbands of Judah, these men of Judah had separated themselves from their covenant wives and gone after pagan wives in illegal marriages. The scripture says, and Jesus affirms it, the two shall become one flesh. At creation, from the one man, God made two and he made them male and female. In marriage, the two then become one flesh again. The man is united to the woman, not just in a physical union, but in a spiritual union before God. Therefore, marriage is most importantly the spiritual union of a man and a woman who become one flesh in the Lord. We know from Paul's commentary in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32... That the mystery that marriage, is, that marriage is concerns Christ and the church. Marriage is therefore much greater than the physical union of a man and a woman. Even greater than the emotional union of a man and a woman. It's greater than the temporal happiness of a man and a woman in marriage. For the essence of marriage is spiritual at its foundation. 
Marriage was always, hear me church, marriage was always meant to be supremely fulfilling in all aspects, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Unfortunately for many couples today, at the prompting of the world, and this is what the world wants to have happen, the world wants to destroy marriage to destroy the family, and in destroying the family, it destroys much, much more than we may realize. Many couples today, at the prompting of the world, have made the primary focus in marriage center around the physical and the emotional aspects. And this is very often done at the expense of the spiritual aspect of marriage. I will say again, lest you hear me say something I'm not saying, marriage is meant to be supremely fulfilling, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. But that fulfillment in marriage, emotionally and physically, must never be at the expense of the spiritual reality of marriage as it conveys that great mystery concerning Christ and his church. In fact, if Christ is not central to all things in a marriage, the temporal fulfillments many couples seek after will ultimately fall short. And this is no doubt one of the reasons divorce is so rampant in our culture. If men and women do not find their ultimate love, joy, and peace in Christ, they will never sufficiently find it in one another from the finite resources of their own carnal humanity. God created marriage between one man and one woman to picture for us the relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, as believers, we are to guard the sanctity of marriage, for in it we guard the sanctity of Christ and his church. Malachi is pronouncing the sin of Judah, these husbands did not guard and protect the sanctity of their marriages. And so they dealt treacherously with their wives and with one another and profaned the covenant with their wives and with their God. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? Having a remnant of the Spirit. Even though these husbands deserted their wives to take for themselves pagan wives, there, there remained a spiritual bond between these men and women. Between these men and their first wives, there was a spiritual bond, a remnant of the spirit that remained. Some commentators believe the tears being shed on the altar are the tears of these Jewish wives that have been abandoned by their husbands. In other words, I'm not saying it's not out of the realm of possibility. It seems to me the context seems as though it is the priest. You cover the altar with tears. But no doubt, these wives being abandoned by their husbands would have gone to the priest shedding tears, crying out for justice that somehow the leaders, the spiritual leaders 
of the people could somehow bring correction and restoration to these marriages that had been abandoned by these men who broke covenant and went after pagan wives. The tears being shed, whether by the priest or, what, or by the wives, indicate these husbands had dealt treacherously with their wives, and God will no longer regard the offerings made by these sinful men. Even with this treachery, there remains a spiritual bond between these husbands and their abandoned wives, for they were joined together spiritually and physically and became one flesh before God. And then the question is asked, why did he make them one? And the answer is, the Lord seeks godly offspring. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. God made them one because he was seeking godly offspring. In other words, God wants children. For through procreation, both natural and spiritual, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Children should not be considered an option in marriage, but a commanded blessing from God. The blessing of children is to be desired as part of the mandate that accompanies marriage. The modern understanding of marriage opposes this idea of God's original intent. The modern idea of marriage is that marriage is first about the individuals. And if the individuals aren't satisfying one another, then you are completely justified to break covenant and go find another individual who will make you happy. Because after all, your personal happiness is what this is all about. And if you want children, that's fine. But, you know, children get in the way. They cause a lot of disruptions. They're going to cost you money. They're going to cost you time. They're going to cost you sleep. You're not going to be able to do all the fun things you might want to do because you might not be able to afford it. And you might not have time to do it because you're going to have a kid you're going to have to take care of. So don't feel guilty if you don't want children. Marriage is all about your personal happiness. If you want children, fine, if that makes you happy. But don't ever, ever, ever feel obligated to have children as if marriage has something to do with you having children. That's just an old antiquated thought that comes from an old book that doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore. By golly, we're living in the 21st century now. And we all know better, right? Well, that's exactly what the world wants you to believe. And that's exactly the lie the world has sold and so many have bought, even in the church. The modern understanding of marriage opposes the idea of God's original intent. In our culture of death today, children are an option at best, but often as they are an afterthought. And abortion has become the sacrament of worship of self. God seeks godly offspring. And who are we to deny what God is seeking after? 
The fruitful multiplication of children should be seen as a given in marriage. Children should be desired and procreation in marriage should be as the Lord wills. God may give you five children, eight children, one children. He may give you none children. But it's God. It's as God wills. Godly offspring are the children of a believing man and or a believing woman. In Malachi, the children of these Jewish husbands and wives were the godly offspring the Lord was seeking. God commanded man to be fruitful and multiply in order to produce godly offspring. This is the responsibility of parents. To procreate and to raise up their godly offspring in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul talks about godly offspring as the children of two or only one parent. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. Paul writes, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. We will baptize children of one righteous parent, one faithful parent, even if the spouse is not a believer that believing parent makes that child holy, Paul says. I didn't say it makes them elect. I said it makes them holy because that's what the Bible says. In other words, it makes that child set apart for the Lord's purpose. And that child is qualified to receive the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, and be welcomed into the family of God and treated as a member of the covenant with all the rights that go with it. Children are called holy or set apart for the Lord because of the faith of only one parent. These holy children are the godly offspring the Lord seeks. Parents are blessed to receive children from God in order that they may be raised and disciplined or discipled, well, disciplined too, raised and discipled to become men and women who fully follow and obey Jesus Christ. The question is asked, why did God make them one? Malachi gives the answer, because God is seeking godly offspring. This harkens back to the commission given to the first man and woman, that is not so different than the commission that was given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at both of them. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. That is the commission to man at the first creation. The man and the woman were made one flesh in order to be fruitful and multiply and produce godly offspring. Godly because the procreation of man was ordained and blessed by God <clears throat> to fill the earth with the image of the glory of God through the man made in his image. 
Now let's look at the commission given to the church by the Lord Jesus. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The commission given to the one new man, the church, in the new creation was, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to obey all things that Christ had commanded. From the two, Jew and Gentile, the Lord created in himself one new man. As in the beginning, we see the two become one. The commission given to the one new man was to disciple the nations, to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. It's no different than the first commission given to the first man. Through our obedience to this commission, the Lord will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, the prophet Habakkuk writes. Since the beginning, it is true that the family is the basic building block for society and the procreation of humanity. Through the family, man is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with godly seed. Marriage was created and ordained by God for this purpose, for the Lord seeks godly offspring. When a believing husband and wife produce children, they are producing disciples. They are literally filling the earth and discipling the nations each time they produce a child within the confines of holy marriage. They are doing exactly what God commanded in Genesis and they are doing exactly what God commanded in Matthew. That child then baptized becomes a member of the body of Christ, the family of God, and is raised in the fear and nurture of the Lord, and those children grow up and do the same thing, being fruitful and multiplying and discipling the nations, thereby filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, filling the earth, taking dominion, subduing it for the glory of God. That is what we are commissioned to do. Now, we're not going to do that overnight. We're not going to do that in a week. We're not going to do it in a bunch of weeks. We're going to do that through the generations through many generations. But if we don't do it in our generation, if we don't do it in our day, in our week, in our months, in our years, in our time of visitation on this earth, then how will it happen in the generations coming after us? It won't. As the church has spent decades waiting for their great escape called the rapture, we have not fulfilled the commission that God has given to us. And the generations are suffering as a result of it. But here's the good news. God has promised victory and he will have it. The church is victorious. Even if we fail, even if we have fumbled the ball, it's not too late to pick it up and continue running downfield. The 
The family is key. It's why the family is under attack. Don't think it's not, because it is. Families outside and families inside the church are under attack. This is equally true for the family of God, the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. We can say then that the church, along with the family, is foundational in seeing the fruitful multiplication of disciples that will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. Because of this truth, we see from the very beginning the enemy has been on a mission to destroy the family. When God birthed the church, the family of God, that is, which is his people, we see the enemy continues to seek the destruction of the family and the destruction of his church. Destroy the family and you'll destroy the church. Destroy the church and you'll destroy the family because they are linked. They are connected together. They were always meant to be and they always will be. Try as he might, the enemy will never destroy the church and he will never destroy the family. Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Remember, marriage pictures for us the mystery which is Christ and the church. And marriage is all about the family. Marriage is also foundational to the family. Neither the church nor the family will fall to the schemes of the enemy or the most evil intentions of men. Christ has promised his church victory, and that necessarily includes victory for the family in every sense of the word, both naturally and spiritually. The Lord seeks godly offspring, and he will have them. As his church, we are privileged to be a part of making that a reality. Now today and for generations to come. Then God issues a warning in verse 15. Take heed to your spirit. That phrase in Malachi, wife of his youth. God says, but did he not make them one because he seeks godly offspring? Yes, he did. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. That phrase is drawing a distinction between the Jewish wives, the first wives, and the pagan wives who had been recently taken to replace the wife of their youth or the wife of the covenant. Because of this sin, God warns them to take heed to your spirit. Think about what you are doing. In other words, think about what you are doing. Return to God and repent of your sin. Stop dealing treacherously with your God-ordained wives, the wife of your youth. Separate yourself from the false thing and return to the wife of your covenant. That is what repentance would look like in Malachi's day for these men who had deserted their wives. You have to decide for yourself, through the wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit, What repentance looks like for you, husbands or wives, fathers or mothers, children of God. But here is what we know, because God says it very clearly. The Lord hates divorce. Verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. 
For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He says those words again, issues that warning again in verse 16. This is a straightforward declaration from the Lord. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. It's plain God hates divorce. Jesus was questioned concerning divorce because Moses allowed it in the law. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. They said to him, why then did Moses... This is, a, this is a continuation from the verses I just read out of Matthew. When Jesus is talking about marriage, let no man separate what God has joined together. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put, a, and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Let me just pause for a moment and remind you that God is graceful. God is a redeemer. And when we repent of our sin before God, though we cannot unscramble scrambled eggs, we can trust that God's grace and God's mercy through the blood of Jesus will cover us. And if we confess our sin to God in true repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, even the unrighteousness of divorce. It's not the un forgivable sin but it is sin and we should call it nothing less Jesus said Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts but from the beginning it was not so when God ordained marriage in the beginning divorce was not an option today divorce is always an option in marriage according to the world it's why we have what's called no fault divorce Adultery is abandonment of the marriage. This is why adultery is a condition for divorce. It is not simply that we do not see eye to eye. It's not just that our interests have changed or I need a change of scenery. The act of adultery is the act of abandoning the marriage relationship and the covenant. And God equates it with violence. Divorce does violence to the marriage relationship. The man who deserts the wife of his youth for the daughter of a foreign god does violence to his wife and to the covenant of God. The wife who abandons her husband for another does the same. It works both ways. Again, God warns those participating in this sin, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the second time The Lord gives this warning to those who are aware and awake of their sin, but carry on as though they have no guilt. Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, the Lord warns. Today, our redefinitions of marriage, our disregard for the covenant of God and the sanctity of marriage are all things that do violence against the covenant of marriage 
and do violence against the covenant of God. Man may believe he can simply pass some legal judgment or ride a majority opinion that now redefines and reorders marriage based on the vain imaginations of sinful men, but he cannot. Marriage was not created and ordained by man, but by God, and God alone defines marriage. In light of the sanctity of marriage and all it represents, we, the church, must stand strong in our efforts to guard and preserve the sanctity while encouraging and supporting strong and fruitful marriages to the glory of God and to the obedience of our commission to Christ our Lord. God calls every husband to step up and be the spiritual head. God ordains a man and a father to be in Christ. Fathers are to lead the family in obedience to all that Christ has commanded. This begins with men, with husbands, and with fathers being led by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Christ and all that he has commanded. Men, do that and your families will follow. God will be glorified and the generations will be blessed. Men, I know it's not always easy. Wives, you have a powerful way of making your husbands submit to your will. And you don't always do it maliciously. Sometimes you do it out of a place of hurt or true need. But men, you must be strong enough to resist the temptation and lead your families according to God's word and seek the wisdom of God for what is best for your family and not be moved by the emotions, no matter how real they are. Men, listen to your wives. Hear them. Hear their needs. But understand that God has placed you in a place as the head of the home, as the priest of your family. And you ultimately are responsible for how you lead or how you don't lead. The men of Judah did not do a very good job of leading their families. In fact, they bailed on them, abandoned them. And it cost that nation dearly in the end. And it will cost us as a people, as a nation, dearly if we do not do the right things, the hard things, and obey all that Christ has commanded and love even as Christ loved and gave himself. Men, give yourself for your wives, for your families. Do it out of love the way Christ did for us, the church. Your marriage pictures that relationship. It's a heavy, heavy responsibility, men. Wives, it's a heavy responsibility for you to submit to your husbands. But all of us, whether men or women, husbands or wives, all of us are to be submitted to the Lord. 
And to him first, we are to submit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. I spoke a lot to men today. Please stand for your charge. Because Malachi is addressing the men of Judah, not that there were not guilty women, not that there were not sinful women, but Malachi is addressing the men, the husbands, the priests who are not doing the right thing, who are not dealing with the sin of the people, but in fact participating in it. And whether directly or indirectly, passively, through inaction, through not saying the right things, approving of that sin. Men, what you do and what you do not do matters. God has made you a leader whether you want to lead or not. And you are leading whether you realize it or not. The question is, where are you leading those God has placed under your authority? Even if you don't want that authority, it's yours. It's God-ordained. It's God-given. The men and the husbands in Malachi's day were not leading well. They were leading wickedly, as a matter of fact, as they pursued their own selfish lusts and desires. If you are in Christ, you belong to Jesus, body, soul, and spirit. You are not your own. And that is true for men, for women, and for children. It's true for young, for old. It's true for all of us. Malachi is not dealing specifically with the sins of women in these passages we looked at. He's dealing with the sins of these men. And what that tells us is that doing the right thing is foremost. And men, there is not a justification for you doing the wrong thing. You can do what God says you can do, but you can't do the wrong thing. And it doesn't matter how sinful you think your wife may be or how disagreeable she may be to you, you're not justified in sinning against her because you think she has sinned against you. We are the church, the family of God, made up of individual families and families of individuals, but we are not separate and nor are we separated. We are many members of one body under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are members of one another as we are members of Christ's body. So let us live accordingly, honoring and obeying the Lord as we love and honor one another and build up his body in love. Let us do this as men and women, as husbands and wives, as children. Let us do it for his glory. Let us not deal treacherously with one another. But as the writer of Hebrew encourages us, rather let us provoke one another to love and good works and even more as we see the day approaching. Amen. Let us sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Oh.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.